is uh, written by King Solomon, and uh, he is writing this uh, as sort of a poem, love letter, song. He refers to it as the Song of Songs. So uh, for someone that has written thousands of uh, proverbs and songs and uh, you know books of wisdom, uh, for him to say that above all other songs, this is the Song of Songs, uh, should cause us to pay attention. It is most definitely, most certainly, a, an extremely intimate uh, love letter, uh, a love song written uh, to his bride, the Shulamite. And um, there are those very direct applications, but throughout it, uh, he's revealing to us that it's also this sort of illustration of our relationship with God. And so, uh, you know, we very much need to uh, look at uh, this in both lights, uh, with uh, looking at it especially as the idea of uh, it being a love letter, uh, just specifically between him, his this man and his wife. It's important for us to understand how you know our enemy uh, wants to hijack things and rob things. Uh, from us, uh, in particular, uh, you know, marriage and love and even sex and intimacy uh, that are discussed so intimately in this book of the Bible. You know, there are those, even within Christianity, that talk about uh, particularly sex as though it were something that strictly belongs to the world and, um, you know, that God doesn't want us experiencing it and participating in it. Well, I mean, if we think about it, uh, you know, God created sex. This was his plan. Uh, he designed the pleasures of intimacy. Uh, so, you know, it, it, what a horrible thing to think that God would design something so pleasurable, so fulfilling, and then say, you're not allowed to participate in that. You know, this isn't God's mindset at all. We've talked about it many times that his intentions, with especially sexual intimacy, are that they would stay inside the confines of marriage. And we've talked about all of the things that the scripture has to say about, you know, all of the other sins are outside the body, the New Testament tells us, but that sex is a sin against our own body. And so, therefore, you know, when it's sinful, when it's not done the way that the Lord has prescribed for it, it, it brings a greater destruction than any other sin to the soul. So, um, you know, you shouldn't think of this as being something that, uh, you know, is somehow worldly in any way. Uh, in the 60s, Alfred uh, Kinsey you know, steps on to especially the, the American scene in the late 50s and early 60s, and he begins to make all of these presentations about human sexuality. And the public begins to listen, and, and he, uh, you know, makes the case that uh, the reason uh, that there are these sexual problems within our culture is because of the restraints that Judeo-Christian ethics 
have put upon sexuality and we need to remove those completely and just allow people to do whatever they want to do uh, sexually and uh, by those experiences there will be a freedom and a fulfillment and everyone will find contentment happiness and joy and here we sit in a culture that is filled with the results of that mentality you know completely destroyed by what they then referred to as the sexual revolution it was decades later when people began to really investigate Alfred Kinsey's research that they began to to discover in his journals that especially like the first phases of what he's saying about human sexual behavior that he's labeling as normal sexual human behavior he's deriving those assumptions from interviews that he conducted in England with people who were sexual criminals as he uh, interviewed them in prison. You know, uh, child rapists and murderers, and, and, you know, rapists and murderers uh, who were imprisoned. He's picking their brain for what their sexual desires are and their sexual behaviors are, and he's cataloging that as normal. And then comes to the United States, and we find out again decades later, you know, he's performing research, quote unquote, that we, after an a- analyzing it and questioning people decades later, find that the guy himself was a pedophile. And what he's labeling as research was the abuse of children. And this, this is what he took to the Supreme Court and argued for the right to produce pornography. So now we live in a culture that went through the sexual revolution that that created. Think about the stark difference in the mindset of people prior to the 50s, you know, parents and grandparents that were raised prior to the 50s regarding marriage and sex and all of the people that came up after the 50s and experienced their own sexual development after the 50s. You know, when we're sitting here today in our culture reading the headlines about rape, murder, Craigslist, prostitution, this is the fruit of Alfred Kinsey and what that man did by saying, no, no, let's throw off God's restraint. God said sex and all the pleasures thereof belong inside marriage. Kinsey says, no, let's throw that off. Let's, let's, let's put sex everywhere. Now look at our culture. More than 50% of marriages end in divorce. You know, sexual infidelity inside marriage, some estimate as being as high as 70%. That includes the 50% of marriage and a, a plus 20. This is the fruit of rejecting God's word and saying, no, like I've illustrated and you know talked about how you know this fire that could warm a person's life of sexual intimacy inside marriage, you take that out and start spreading that fire around and it burns everything to the ground. It's it's incredibly destructive what it does to a society and to a culture. We don't want to follow the wisdom of the world. So what's being described here as we see it? Understand God wants a marriage to contain this. And then we do the spiritual application that God has this intense desire for us as believers 
for intimacy, nothing perverted, nothing even sexual about what he's saying, that he wants that friendship and relationship and depth that can only be described as marriage. Deepest relationships we're ever going to have in this world are the ones that we experience in marriage, in godly marriage. The only thing that will eclipse that is being in the presence of God and having a relationship that's that much deeper and that much more intimate. One who could literally understand our very thoughts, our, our very person, our very soul. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 1. Here, the Shulamite is saying to Solomon, Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. Now, you know, with the pollution of our modern sexual culture, that's a bit confusing. In this ancient culture, as she's looking at a potential husband, she's saying, I wish I could find a husband that was as concerned for me as a brother who was as close to me as the one my mother had raised, right? You know, and for those of us that have good relationships with our siblings, right? Some of us came up in homes where it was bad and ugly and abusive and you know, ungodly. We're not describing that. You know, the, the actual caring, the actual nurturing of a brotherhood. You know, I had two older uh, brothers growing up, and I was the test pilot on uh, you know most of their experiments, which you know didn't work out a lot of the time for me. Uh, a lot of that was fueled by my oldest brother, uh, who you know just decided every ski jump and ramp and bicycle they had built should be tested by me first. The middle brother, on the other hand, was a lot more level-headed, squared away, good student, responsible, taught me a lot of things. You know, so you got the, the daredevil adventurer, you need that in your life. And, and you also need the squared away guy who can give you advice and counsel, especially when there's no dad in the house. You know, and uh, my relationship with my brother who's still alive is still that deep. For all the distance and time that can pass, I can call Andrew up and just pour my heart out to him. And that's what's being described here. You know, that that if she wanted to develop a relationship, she would want it to have that depth of a trustworthy brother. you got to spend some time getting to know somebody before you can make that kind of assessment of their personality, right? I mean, you don't just meet a guy or a gal out on some occasion, think that they look awesome and thrill your heart and your body, and then have some kind of emotional firestorm of an experience, and hey, let's just stand at the altar and seal this for the rest of our lives. Uh, you can't possibly know. You can't, I mean, that type of emotion blinds your ability to reason, right? And I don't want to show of hands, but there are people in this room that can attest to what it's like to jump into one of those relationships and realize six months, eight months, a year, two years down the road, wait a minute, this person is nothing like what I thought. You know, I'm right now trying to help, uh, you know, close friend 
as they're going through a horrific divorce because you know when they walked into the relationship there were only a couple of us that were seeing this gentleman for what he really was the woman was just blind with that emotion of you know quote unquote love which really was lust and now we're 20 years down the road and everything is ruined and all she's worked for literally all her life is going to be cut in half and he's walking away with the other half remarkable damage oh oh if in the very beginning you know uh, i know this woman's brother had she spent the time to get to know him and consider is this man as trustworthy as my brother no would have been the answer no would have most definitely been the answer here you know that's her understanding you know that then she moves into that uh, you know idea of i would kiss you if if i had been able to find you like this two i would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother she who used to instruct me i would cause you to drink spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate meaning i would bring you into my house and you would relax with the family like a member of the household so that my family could make the same assessment of you there's a wisdom there trusting the people around you who know you best you know rather than selling yourself into the idea of yeah i'm going down this road no matter what you know bringing you to the person that has to first say do you measure up do you pass the bar you know do you meet mom's approval and if mom says no are you willing to trust mom's assessment you know maybe it's not mom but somebody else that you can trust you know each of my daughters just directed the young men that were interested in them to me is you know this is great this is wonderful glad you're interested in me you're going to need to go talk to my dad you know and they arrive and you know i definitely was the hardest on james because he was the first and i was not used to this whole process so we just began with a long list of have you read these books <laughs> you know they were in bible college together you know and i wanted to know what that meant and i got to know the guy you know so it was with Zach, and so it was with Evan. I mean, Evan was, you know, one of the easiest because I'd known him personally the longest. But the girls looking for that guidance, there's a great uh, wisdom in that. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, man, I blew it. <laughs> I'm all the way into this. I'm completely, what am I going to do now? You have a heavenly father that you can trust. And uh, let me just say this right up front. If you've discovered that person is not what your illusion told you they were, and now you're like waking up to the reality that you're now locked in and living in, let me just say this. Don't ever try to change that person. Don't even try. You will, you will do way more damage than you can possibly imagine trying to change them 
making the suggestions, having the insistence, writing the list, you know, having the intervention with whoever and sitting down and trying to make them something different than what they are. Now, I'm not arguing. Don't get me wrong. Maybe they do need to change. Maybe they need a complete overhaul. Maybe they are an absolutely destructive lunatic that needs to change. Maybe so. Right? And I wasn't just talking about the guys there, ladies. I've seen some of the gals, too. It's pretty interesting out there along the way. Maybe they do. But here's the deal. You're not equipped to change them. The best you are is Dr. Frankenstein. I mean, really, right? Because what you're saying is, I've examined this person over here, and I really like those attributes. So I'd like to take those and add them to you. And I'd like to hack all of this off of you and get rid of it and take all of this and put it in here and take all of that and get out of there. And you will, you will create a monster because you don't have the skills and abilities to create a human being. Now, here's the beautiful thing. You have direct access to the one who does. That's the whole process we're talking about with our faith, right? Being born again. If you can look over at your spouse, your loved one, and think, I need something different than this monster I'm currently living with. Well, here's the deal. Go to your heavenly father. Right? This mother here, this one who loves her daughter so much, go to your heavenly father and tell him your problems. Talk to him. Never take the complaint to the monster you're living with because they will only react poorly. And even if they take it to heart that I'm going to change myself, now what are they going to do? Start performing some kind of spiritual surgery on themselves? It doesn't happen. Does it? I don't know about you guys, but the changes that have occurred in my life, very few of them have ever looked back and thought, boy, I changed myself there. I look at my life and the mess that I was before I met the Lord, and the closest I've ever come to that is accurately recognizing what needed to change and then begging God for the change. That's about as close as I've come to changing myself. And that's the closest you're ever going to come as a loved one or a spouse to changing another human being. You can do more damage trying to change them. Bring them to your Heavenly Father. What is the wine we drink? The wine of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, communion. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And again, this is the idea of don't enter into romance, don't enter into intimacy until it is appropriate until it is ordained of God. I, I have had many young friends who waited for a long time, and then the Lord brought them the one they are supposed to have, and they are so fulfilled. 
I think we all know people, or maybe we've been people in this room who rushed into where our heart was leading us and then had to pay the consequences. Verse 5 says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I will awaken you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she bore you, brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Uh, the wilderness described here in verse 5 is not the woods and the forest like we might think of. This is the barren desert, uh, the deep south of Israel in the heat of the Middle East, raging inferno of furnace that would just cook you dry in a very short period of time. That is what is being described in regard to her leaning upon her beloved. It's the idea of having to put the full weight into someone as they carry them out. Again, these poetic descriptions are, you know, both within the marriage and within our relationship with the Lord. The needing to rely upon someone else completely, our needing to rely upon the Lord completely. I, I've been accused many times, I'm sure you probably have too, you know, people say, I don't need Christianity, that's nothing but a crutch. And, uh, you know, we, it's an old cliche, but we go even further than, no, it's it's not a crutch, it's a complete hospital bed, it's a total gurney. This is something that has to carry us all the way across. It's, it's not something I lean on a little bit. I, I literally need to, to have the Lord carry me into the place I need to be. You know, I just uh, had a conversation with some people today talking about ministry, and they're asking me all kinds of questions about what this church does, what you do as a fellowship, what we're involved in, jail ministry, how we're you know working with the drug rehabilitation programs, all these different things. And this woman by the end is just saying, man, you are awesome. You are so... I mean, I know myself. It's just a foolish thing to hear that. And, you know, what I kept saying to her, and I finally got my point across at the end, is, you know, ma'am, I am a creep. You know, if, if you're talking about who I am, you know, if, if you knew me without the Lord, I mean, that's when you, like, lock the doors. You know, if there's anything good about me, if there's something that you're looking at right now saying that's admirable, what you're looking at is Jesus Christ. You're looking at his effect on my life. It's not me. I can't take credit for that. He, he's affected all these changes. He's brought these things about. He's opened the doors and directed me through to where I am today. If there's something good about me, then it's Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm, to that end, I would you know take that as a compliment that he deserves. The effect, the change that he has had upon us, leaning upon her beloved, you know, bringing us to that place of rest. Six, set me as a seal. You've sung this song probably upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, a brand, a mark, a tattoo. Literally, mark me upon your heart, upon your arm. 
for love is as strong as death. It's it's an unavoidable. This love that she's experiencing is something that's absolute, complete. And when we say that often, right? Ten out of ten people die. There's, there's no way around the statistic. Nobody makes it out alive. So it is with the completion of love. It is a thing that is absolutely consuming. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. This is a description of love that he's putting forward here. You know, Oprah Winfrey, years ago, in the uh, early 90s, as her popularity was really just beginning to grow, she had uh, been questioned about um, God and faith and Christianity. And, you know, the people who were interviewing her knew she had been raised in Christian churches in the South in her upbringing. It's, in fact, why she names, you know, bears the name Oprah. But uh, she... Uh, she finally confessed uh, very publicly in her interviews, you can still find it, uh, that she, she, does, she despises the God of the Bible. She does not like, uh, the Bible does not like the God of Christianity. And her statement was uh, that she made that conclusion when she was in church one time because she heard that God is a jealous God. And she knows, you know, her confession was that she knew jealousy was a sin and so she wanted nothing to do with a God that would be jealous. What a weird statement. You know, I, to me, that sounded like a very ignorant, very ill-informed, you know, confession of a woman who'd never been married and never had children. Because I'll tell you, uh, I'm serious as a heart attack about my wife. I'm unthinkably jealous of my wife, and it is right and godly. You know, my wife has had to, like, talk me down a few different times in life where I just thought somebody was, you know, saying something to her or, you know, mistreating her. And, you know, I can do that, but nobody else can, you know, that's my attitude. I just, you know, my sinfulness, the jealousy just well right up and instantly there on the surface, you know, parents, right? Somebody mistreats your child, you know, they can just pick up their body parts on their way out the door when you're done with them. Man, I mean, you just lay a finger on my kid you know, harm my kid, say something harsh to my kid, you and I are going to go around until, you know, there's bloodshed. It's not, a, I mean, jealousy for my children? Absolutely. You know, I I pulled in my, behind my daughter, she was driving my Suburban, and, and you know, to this other man's defense, uh, she pulled around a little too quickly, and she stopped the car in the parking lot uh, a little too close his car he sprang right out of the car and came out at my daughter who was just like 16 at the time roaring at her and what it was all about was she was about two and a half inches from his front bumper it's a parking spot he's in a parking spot she whips around pulls to the parking spot with my big black suburban and stops about two and a half inches away from his bumper well i mean brand new truck you know, he's got, you know, 30-day plates on it still. And he decides that he's going to let this little girl know, which maybe he should have said something to her. But don't spring out of the truck and lunge at my daughter yelling at her. You know, 
we we had words and it got toe to toe before it was all over and you know the summary of the thing was she didn't hit your truck so just shut up and go away that it, that doesn't sound godly to you you know be angry and sin not the scripture says 40-year-old man doesn't get to scream at and intimidate 16-year-old daughter while I'm present. Doesn't happen. This, this is biblical. This, this is the godly jealousy. It's as serious as death. It's as cruel as the grave. This is the way marriage should be. This is the relationship we have with God. He contends for us. No? He got between you and death so intimately that it literally killed him. He allowed himself to be killed for your sake. You were going to die and go to hell and be separated from God, uh, from God for all of eternity. And he said, no way, and threw himself, literally, arms spread wide open in front of death and took it for you and me. And if we'll just accept that as our own, that's love. That is love. You know, to, to see someone who would go all the way. This is this listen, this is what this is what love should be. Most of what is described as love, what Kinsey put forward as this is love, that was selfish lust. Nothing more. You know, the sexual revolution had nothing to do with love whatsoever. Every single act that he was promoting, all that our culture is steeped in right now, that's about how does it affect me? What do I get out of this? Even as people pursue those relationships and act as though, no, I couldn't live without this man or woman, uh, really, could could you live without them if sex was no longer part of the relationship? Because all you're talking about is, I am addicted to my self-gratification within this relationship so deeply that I can't live without it. That's not love. That's selfishness. Love has this attitude of, I literally would die for I won't let anyone or anything else interfere with it. I will defend it to the core. I will defend it with everything that I am. You know, it is cruel as the grave. Its flame, flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. You know, if it's true love, no one could pay you for it. If it's true love, you know, somebody couldn't come along and say, hey, I want that relationship from you. I want that man or woman as my own. What if I gave you all this money and all these houses and all this stuff? Could I have that person as mine and you just walk away? You know, love would not have a moment's hesitation. I mean, love is going to be angry about that prospect. Love is going to be, you know, aggressive about combating the suggestion of such a thing. 
Absolutely not. I don't want any, there's nothing that could ever replace this relationship. That is how it should be more than anything in our relationship with God. More than anything in our relationship with God. Because that's what's going to preserve whatever earthly relationship we have. We don't have that relationship with God, then it's nearly impossible for us to ever have that type of relationship with a human being. I just can't believe some of the disparaging things I hear married people saying about one another. It's, it's a heartbreak. It's a heartbreak to hear certain expressions. You know, I, I know some people you know, sort of think it's funny at times. But, uh, you know, there's a certain level of bitterness you can hear in certain people's voices that you can tell that while they're sort of jesting and laughing, there's a certain degree of that that they actually mean. You know, I just was with some people today, and uh, we, were, we were talking about, you know, ministry, as I shared earlier, and in that they asked me about my family. And I said, my wife and I have been married for 29, we've known one another for 30 years, we've been married for 29 years and the guy quickly barked right out ready to have it over yet I actually was not very offended about the suggestion that I you know he was making that you know am I ready to have my marriage end I mean I was partially offended by that but you know sort of a meaningless statement what I was most offended with is his wife is sitting directly behind him I was really offended for her. If he'd say that about my marriage, then what are you saying about your own marriage? You're, you're, you're making a commentary on your own marriage when you make that type of statement. People say stuff like that all the time. You know, without the depth of fire and flame, passion for the Lord that's being described here, the marriage is going to wither. The passion. Marriage is about being selfless. That's what it's about. It's about serving the other person. You know, well, I don't really care for the things they want. They always, you know, yeah, that's the point. That's their need, and we are in their life to fulfill that need. She just always wants me to clean up, always wants me to build, always wants me to do chores, and that's her need, and that's what we're there for. We are there to serve the other person. Christ came and served us. Being married is about being a servant to your spouse. As long as you think it's something else, you're going to be completely unfulfilled. Well, I just need somebody that's more like myself. No, you don't. Because you're going to have to serve them in all of those areas. All those areas you want to be served in, you're then going to have to serve them in those areas, even if they are more like you. In the end, marriage is about being selfless and serving the other person. As soon as you figure that out, get over yourself and start serving that other person, you suddenly find, hey, marriage is awesome. You're suddenly living with a very happy person who wants to serve you. It's very interesting. As long as we're being selfish, we are destroying our own relationship. The book of James chapter 4 Verse 4, I've read many times, the Lord says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to be an enemy of God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns, the Holy Spirit, that is, yearns jealously for us, for our relationship with him. It's the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind that is saying to you, hey, why don't you shut the television off and just read your Bible for a few minutes before you go to bed? That's the Holy Spirit that's just saying, hey, you know, why don't we make the last thoughts in our mind today about our relationship with the Lord? When we wake up and we're too busy and we're running out the door and there's a voice in our head saying, just take a, a, a few minutes to pray and open your Bible. And we're thinking, I'm too busy for that. It's the Holy Spirit that's saying, yeah, you're going to be too busy today to not do that. This is the jealousy that the Lord has for us. That voice in our heart and mind that is constantly prodding and pulling, and yearning for us. If we'll be obedient to it. Oh, the wonders, the wonders that the Lord will perform in our lives. You know, the great works uh, that he will do in that relationship. And yet we pursue the world. We're concerned, uh, you know, about what people think of us, and how does the world accept us, and how am I going to, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, how do I align myself with the world so that this all works out for my benefit? That is the same as being married and having someone else we're trying to impress. Not my words, that's the Lord. To yearn for the world, the things of the world, the people, the acceptance of the world is to drive a wedge between ourselves and the Lord and create a jealousy in the heart of the Lord about us. He yearns for us, longs us, wants us to be that close with him. Verse 8 of Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts, meaning that she's not mature yet. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. So you've got this young, immature girl that's being described here. She's not developed as a young woman yet. And if she is spoken for and she is a resistant person, a wall, it's hard to get in. You know, she's a person who doesn't open up, doesn't talk. What, what are we going to do? We're going to build upon that. We're going to build a battlement of silver. We're going to make her a fortress. We're going to take that strength that is impenetrable and strong, and we're going to actually build on that, and we're going to make it a thing of beauty, a thing of value, right? If you meet a hard, resistant, difficult person, that's not attractive, you know what I'm saying? Somebody who's a stone wall in their personality, that's not attractive. What the author is saying here is you need to convert that into a thing that's useful and beautiful. 
Nobody wants to be married to a stone wall. But I don't think anyone would mind being behind the protection of that wall. A battlement that was ornate and beautiful. You know, that stone wall of resistance. You know, do you understand the contrast that he's putting here, right? Uh, you see certain people, and you can tell, oh, this person's like very serious. But you get to know them, and they're a nice person, but they're still very serious. That's very different than a person who is a wall and resistant. You know, you speak to them, and they, everything is one-word answers, and you can tell they don't want to talk to you. Do you see the parallel he's trying to make? Whatever their attribute is, in their immaturity, during their immaturity, while she's undeveloped, we need to take whatever that is and develop it into a useful thing, a battlement that is adorned with silver. Take the characteristics that are present and convert them. Turn them into a godly characteristic. Look at the next one. If she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Cedar is always used as symbols of that which is incorruptible. Uh, to this day, cedar is used in locations where there's going to be dampness because it doesn't rot easily. Cedar is used in a place... Uh, where you need it to be preserved for a very long time. You know, cedar shingles, cedar shakes, cedar framing, all of these things are going to be preserved for a very long time. If she's very open and allows people into her life, right? So if she's a closed-off girl and she's a wall and she doesn't want to talk to people, well, use that strength, but make her beautiful. Make that a defense in her life, but make it a beautiful thing. Is she someone that's open and just seems to open the door up to every guy and every person that shows up and comes around? Okay, that's fine. She is an open door, but let's make her incorruptible in the process. Now, I've shared with you before, forgive my repetition, I've done this with each one of my daughters in their life. You know, My oldest daughter, Christian, was completely rebellious. When she was little, and I thought, oh, good Lord, here we go. I've recreated myself. This is going to be horrible. And I began praying, Lord, what am I going to do with this little heart? And the Lord told me, I hadn't even read these passages. The Lord told me the same thing. You need to curve this towards the good. And, you know, what I know I have created in my daughter Christian today is that she is steadfast that rebellion that stubbornness today man if she's your friend she is a fierce friend she will defend you to the core you know and she she does that with with everyone that I know she is strong of personality she really is but it isn't one of rebellion you know, we, we curved that toward what was good. 
We take Rebecca and do the same things. Take Abigail and do the same things. Take their attributes and just when you recognize the sinfulness, don't panic. Isn't it horrifying to see your sinful self in your children, you guys? When you look down at that little face and think, oh, great, there I am. Don't panic. Don't panic. The Lord redeemed you. You're sitting here tonight, right? Pray. And ask the Lord, like you would with your spouse, help me to curve this person into your will. You know, spend the countless hours in prayer. You know, I'll never forget the uh, the marked moment of change in my oldest daughter, Christian. She called me up for Bible college. And I won't share all of her secrets, but she's just pouring her heart out about this very struggle in her life. And I said, Christian, now you finally get it for yourself. I've known this all along. This is what I've talked to you about so many times, and now you're seeing it crystal clear for yourself. And she just, she literally was weeping and howling and just saying, Dad, what am I going to do about myself? And I'm saying, now you have to submit to the Lord and let him turn that to where he wants it to go. And there was, you know, some struggle after that, but the change began to occur as she was submitting her heart and letting him work, bringing things about. You know, and those are just two examples of being closed or open that he gives us those examples. Examine your children as wise parents and, and you know, turn to the positive. It, it's very, very easy, right? You see a child as a wall to just smash on the wall. You shouldn't be like this. Why are you always a wall? You know what I'm saying? You see the open door. You just like kick it down all the time. Why are you like this? Why are you just let all this junk into your life? And you go on the attack to try and destroy that which is clearly bad. Listen, they're going to be a wall the rest of their life. They're going to be an open door the rest of their life. We need to make them beautiful and ornate for the Lord and incorruptible. Let the Lord work in their hearts, their minds, their lives and accomplish what he wants to in there. I am a wall. My breasts are like towers. So now the maturity has come. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard and Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand. Those who tend its fruit, two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. The idea that within you know this relationship that uh, Solomon has here, that you know comparing the relationship to a vineyard, something so precious, so valuable, so sweet, so fruitful, that anyone who saw it would pay large sums of money in order to acquire it. And now she moves that discussion into. No, our relationship, our intimacy is without value. What we hold in one another 
is beyond compare. You know, what, what I have with my wife is, you know, so unthinkably valuable. I was asked to go to a, an anniversary party uh, some years ago, and I was proud and simultaneously embarrassed. Um, they did this game where they ask you questions, right? They take the spouse out of the room, and they go right around the room. So you got all the gals in the other room. They're getting the same questions, okay? And I don't forget them all, but, yeah, I mean, I don't remember them all. But they go through, and they're like, uh, you know, you know, what is your, your, you know, your spouse's favorite color? You know, what is, you know, and, you know, what is their favorite flower? And what is, you know, this? And what is that? And, you know, what are your pet names for one another? And if, if this situation was to occur, uh, you know, how would your spouse react? Uh, you know, if this situation was to transpire, how would your spouse? We come back in the room, and there were people in that room that have been married for 20 years longer than Lori and I. They go all around the room, and the best in the room was 50%. They had, they had accurately answered their spouse's response 50%. Lori and I had answered one another's 100%. Everybody else at the party, we answered one another's questions 100%. That isn't a testament to us, you guys. It's a testament to the Lord's work in our lives. You know, we're a relatively young couple, and that's the depth of of relationship the Lord has created in our lives. You know, they're asking us questions about all these different, you know, some of them important things, some of them silly. You know, by the time we get done, the room's like quiet. Like, this is crazy. Like, you guys actually know every one of these dance. You know, we're getting accused of things by the end. Like, you guys knew this was coming. You No idea. I walked out of that room, like I said, proud and humbled simultaneously of what the Lord had done. Not proud of ourselves, proud of what the Lord has done. It gave me a great strength and encouragement to know, you know, because, you know, in that room, I'm, I'm thinking like, that's a marriage I look up to. That's a marriage I look up to. That's a marriage I look up to. And yet, you know, they didn't know one another as well as my wife and I did. The work of the Lord, it's, it's invaluable. It's invaluable. You know, that isn't to be a discouragement to you at all. Not at all. You know, like, gosh, I don't know if we'd even pull off one third. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying anything like that to any of us. What I'm saying is the Lord can create this type of value in all of our relationships. Or, you know, wherever we're at. You know, if, if you're sitting there right now like, shucks, golly, I was hoping for more out of my relationship. Christ can do it, is doing it. You know, you know, it's interesting to me, you guys. As I've been teaching through this, I've run into a number of other Christians. And, uh, you know, I commonly get asked, you know, where are you studying? What are you teaching? What's going on? You wouldn't believe, as we've gone through this book, how many times other Christians, other churches have said, oh my gosh, I've never studied the book of Song of Solomon. I've never been through that. I don't even really know what that book is about. This is the third time I've taught this church as a congregation through the book of Song of Solomon. It, it exposes a lot of things to us in our relationship with the Lord. 
Now, we've got a few more minutes, and uh, there are a few things I want to look at. So if you, if you don't have a piece of paper, you can ask me for the notes later. But there are some passages that I want to read in regard to uh, our relationship with the Lord being like marriage. God does this both directions. He takes his relationship with us and makes it like marriage, and then he takes marriages and he draws similarities to himself. So we're going to look at a number of things. I, immediately, as I began to pray about this, I recalled Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and 39, where the Lord is about to be crucified by uh, the people in uh, Jerusalem and his great love. So their betrayal of him, his hatred of him, and his great love for them. In Matthew 23, verses 37, he says, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more. Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His great desire for the people who had rejected him. Yeah, I, I think that that's actually a very encouraging thing because very often when we sit and we examine Song of Solomon or passages like it and we hear the intimacy of God, we look at ourselves and think, yeah, but I mean, I've spent most of my life in rebellion running from God, not wanting to have any knowledge of him or relationship with him. Understand the heart of God that regardless of how you've treated him, he's desired you. He's wanted us. He's longed for us. That's his expression. Of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2, the Lord says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you, Paul speaking to the church, to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, Paul said, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, nor a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You know, Paul is sending out that pleading warning saying, you know, I want to bring you like a fiancé in her purity to the groom, Jesus. But I'm concerned because you seem to be so easily tossed around by other belief systems that you could get easily dragged away. You know, another Jesus. Whenever people come into the faith, I say, watch out for the Mormons. Watch out for the Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll show up on your doorstep and start talking to you about things you've never heard before. And you think, well, that's really intriguing. And it's not until much later you realize they're using the word Jesus 
But the Jesus they're talking about, they've created and invented it from their own belief system. It doesn't have anything to do with the Word of God. You know, their gospel is an entirely different approach. The simplicity, he said, I'm worried you would stray from the simplicity. What's the simplicity? We were sinners, never going to be in the presence of God. God became a man and died for us. If we just accept that death, then we don't ever have to taste death. The minute we leave this world, we enter the presence of God. That's the simplicity of Christ. Accept his substitutionary death on your behalf, and you're in. Be his bride. Be his, his prize. That's a pretty simple process. People want to complicate it, and people get led astray by it. Of course, Ephesians chapter 5, the Lord compares husbands and wives to his relationship with us. The church, Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Be in the word daily. Read the word simply. Don't really understand it. I tried to read it. Keep reading it. Just let it flow into your heart and mind and flush out whatever it's going to that he might present her to himself. I like that, right? The Lord doesn't say to us, the church, the bride, hey, clean up your act, and then maybe, maybe I'll accept you. What the Lord is saying is, I already accept you, so let me cleanse you. Let me wash you. Let me purify you, right? How many people have said that, right? Yeah, I'm going to come to church. I'm definitely, I'm coming back to church. There's just a few things I got to get straightened out first. If there are a few things to get straightened out, then you're a prime candidate for church. The old preachers used to say to me, you don't clean the fish before you catch them. Right? Catch, a, catch the fish first, then clean them. Come to church. Let the Lord clean your life. Washing with the water of the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing oh well he doesn't know me i'm completely polluted used and abused i'm destroyed wrinkled i'm wrecked it's not how he sees us bathed in his blood purified from our sin he sees us as spotless and pure but that he should uh, be holy and without blemish so the husband ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. I figured out a long time ago my wife likes gifts, not extravagant ones. She, she likes it if I find some little tiny pine cone, you know, that's just barely all opened up and cute. And I bring it to her and say, I found this today and thought about you. Oh, man. Like brownie points, you know, score. Just, you know, just on the way back to the church and think about, oh, she's pretty tired by now. I should stop and get her a coffee and just come through the door with a, a cup of coffee just for her. Just a small thing. You know, I understand that that's where my wife's mind is at. Do you understand where your spouse is at? 
Yeah, if you're just doing those little things all the time, Christ loves us. Tell me Christ isn't watching you all the time. Tell me Christ isn't there ahead of you, taking care of you, doing things for you, right? How many times have you been right in the middle of going, this stinks, I can't believe my circumstances, and then, oh, wait, God just fixed everything. And you're right in the middle of hallelujah, and you never even think back to, I was just bad-mouthing God. He's paying attention. He's working. He's waiting. He wants. We can do the same with our spouse. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I actually have had arguments with a number of people that say, I do hate myself. That's wrong. I hate myself. To which I say, ah, you've actually got it backwards. You don't like yourself. They're like, exactly. No. See, you love yourself so much you wish you were something different. So you're bugged with the fact that this is your current condition because you love yourself so much, you wish you were that. The fact that you're bugged with yourself is an evidence that you love yourself. Why do things have to be so hard? Why does it always ever? You're saying you want better for yourself because you love yourself. Do we love our spouses that way? Christ loves us that way, just as the Lord does the church. Oh, let's see, three, two more minutes, a couple passages. Um, how about we just jump to this last one? Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, the Lord speaking, Old Testament, says, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me husband and no longer call me master. Verse 18 says, In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. He's going to remove all the threats in the animal kingdom and from even the human race. No more war, no more anything. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice in loving kindness and mercy i will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the lord it shall come to pass in that day that i will answer says the lord i will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth the earth shall answer with grain with new wine with oil they shall answer uh, jezreel which means god will plant then I will sow, literally plant her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Speaking of when the Lord comes to rule on the earth and then the eventual arrival of heaven, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful when you read the other passages to have no concern for safety at all? No concern about the need for food. No concern about where your children are. We read in the prophets that literally the children will reach right down into the viper's hole and pull out venomous 
snakes and play with them and have no harm. And you won't even have a, a panic. Have you guys seen any of uh, the videos? You know, we think we're the only pranksters in the world. Have you seen some of the, the, the videos from India and the guys pranking one another with rubber snakes? Have you seen this stuff? You know, like six people walking down to the watering hole, and they've apparently got cell phones, but no running water. So you know, it's interesting to me. So, you know, and, and there's one guy over in the bushes with fishing line, and he's got a, a rubber cobra, you know, that's on the other side of the trail and waits for his buddy to walk out and, like, pulls that thing out. And, I mean, the absolute freak out over the fact, I mean, there, if a cobra is within a foot of you, your life is over. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just it's crazy. No fear to come to the point. Have you have you had this occurrence where you you turn around and you, your perception is there's a snake right there? Some of us do it with spiders, right? I probably shouldn't tell you that Ross Mawinney can't stand spiders, but I just did. So I just you know he will free rubber spiders are your friend if you're around Ross. Just. Leave one on his desk, wait for him. Panic, fear, no cause for fear at all, ever. You know, early uh, this summer, the dogs are freaking out late at night, and I'm thinking, yeah, I should have let them out. And I go sauntering out to the back door and rip the inside door open, and I've got a glass door there, and as I reach for the handle, the open the door, the outside light is on, and I see some motion, look to the right, and there's like a 250-pound bear right there in my trash cans. You know, had I opened that door, any of you that have been in my house and met James's dog, Callie, that thing is high-strung. If I'd opened that door, that boxer would have been out there with that. I, I, you get that white-hot prickle all over your body like you just caught on fire somehow. No more fear. When Christ is on earth and he rules, no more politics, no more nonsense, when he has embraced the human race as his bride, all things are secure. Even the ground will yield to us fruit in a way that it never has before. Life is going to be good. This intimacy that is described in the Song of Solomon, this is God's desire for us now individually and for the human race in its future. When people are talking about, well, how could God, you know, allow that hurricane? How could God do? Why does God, God doesn't do any of that stuff. That's all the result of the human race rebelling against God, plunging all of his creation into sin when he fixes all of that and straightens all of that out then we're going to know him personally we'll see him face to face as adam and eve did it'll be a glorious event it'll be a wonderful thing to see things the way they're supposed to be rather you know for for believers i'll end with this statement this is an old thing i'm just robbing other preachers for believers this is as close to hell as you're ever going to experience. For people that don't know the Lord, that's why they live the way they do, because this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. This time around, there's so much better waiting for us. There's a husbandman, a groom who wants to do us good, 
And that's what we're looking forward to. Make sense? Right. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the book, Song of Solomon. Pray that you would help us to understand more than anything your great desire for us. How much you love us, how much you want to be with us. Help us to be men and women that look to you, that want to know these things, that long to grow and be close to you. Accomplish your work in us. Guide us as your sons and daughters. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.